0: This is a one and all media podcast.
1: In Luke 16 now, we're supposed to learn that there is a specific type of person who ends up separated from God for all of eternity. A selfish, arrogant, entitled, self-absorbed individual who worships, trusts, and places his or her worth and security in something other than God. Now, some of you might say, well, isn't that everyone to a degree? Today.
0: today, today with Jeff Vines. Welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. My name is Aaron, and today Pastor Jeff has another message in our series titled The Trouble with Christianity, which is a series looking at some big questions that many have about the Christian faith. Today's topic asks, does God send us to hell? To help address this topic, Pastor Jeff is looking at Luke chapter 16, verse 19, which is a verse about the rich man and Lazarus. We learn from this passage there's a type of person who ends up separated from God for eternity. It might all sound heavy going, but here's Pastor Jeff to help us contextualize this concept for today's
1: world. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. That's going to be our text. And just before we read this, you know, I remember I was recalling that when I was baptized, uh, when I was eight years old, if you were baptized in the church in which I grew up, you received a Bible. And this is back in the day when the Bible said on the front, the red letter edition. And of course, the red letter edition meant that all of the words Jesus spoke were now written in red lettering. So I remember getting that Bible and thumbing through it to find out, okay, when did Jesus speak? What did he say? One of the first passages, believe it or not, that I read was in Luke 16. I still remember that to this day, and I'm going to read it for you now. In verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire." So they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now there's so much to unpack in this passage. And I think you've noticed in this series we've been dealing with overarching themes rather than going down into the depths of the weeds of the passage. If there's any passage or Christian belief that causes consternation with the seeker, it is this one. Their objection usually goes like this. I believe in a God of love. A God of love would never send anyone to hell and torment them for eternity. Now, If you say to me that you believe in a God of love and a God of love would never send anyone to hell or torment for all of eternity, then I have to ask you a few questions. And here's the first one. What do you mean by hell? You said, send someone to hell for eternity. What do you mean by that? My mind goes back. Growing up in East Tennessee, we had one particular Sunday school teacher that said, I wanna tell you young students what hell is really like. And of course, we were terrified. It's about heat and fire, she said. It's like placing your hand on a hot stove. Now imagine just holding it there and never letting go. And now imagine your whole body is on that hot stove, burning, searing forever. I mean, I was terrified. And then she said, it's not only fire, but it's darkness. It's like falling into a bottomless pit. It's like riding a roller coaster to the very top. Suddenly you began to free fall and hell is like a place that you never hit the bottom. That feeling that you have as you're falling is there for eternity. So it's heat and fire and darkness, total darkness and aloneness. And then she mentioned these, what I would call today, hell worms. These worms that would eat at your flesh, constantly eating at your flesh so that you are eternally undead. And then, of course, there's smoke and heat and suffering forever and ever. Now, if that's what you mean by hell, can I actually tell you I agree with you and I actually understand your issue? Modern people, because they've never read the Bible, look at a passage like this or think about hell and they think hell works like this because that's what they've been told by someone else, that God gives you enough time in your life to make the right decisions. And if you make them, then you're good to go. But if you don't make the right decisions, he will cast you into hell for eternity. And as the poor soul falls through darkness and space and isolation, they cry out for mercy. And then God, in a sort of Vincent Price voice, says, ha ha, too late. You had your chance. Now you're going to suffer. Ha 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 ha. (laughs) That caricature, uh, caricature of hell completely misunderstands the nature of evil and the biblical teaching concerning hell. Oh, oh, Pastor Jeff, then you're admitting the Bible does teach about hell. Oh, yeah. Hell is a Greek word, Gehenna, translated into our English, hell. So what's hell or what's Gehenna? It's an actual place. You with me? That's important. Hell is the English translation of the Greek word Gehenna, which is an actual geographical place. I don't know if you remember a few years ago. It's actually been quite a few now. The Tennessee Volunteers, my hometown, they're in Knoxville, Tennessee. We used to be in the top 10 in football every season, and we've actually won quite a few national championships. But in the early 90s, things started to turn south. Bad recruiting, bad coaching, and we hired a guy by the name of Lane Kiffin, who came from USC, and he was going to be our savior, small s. He comes in, brings some recruits, Uh, does a wonderful job recruiting out of the Southeast. And then suddenly, a year into it, he decides to get out of his contract and leave. And that left Tennessee high and dry. They were so angry with him. How angry? They actually named a dump after him outside of the city of Knoxville. True story. So Gehenna is outside of Jerusalem. In the same way that you have Kiffin dump, you have Gehenna, which is a dump outside of Jerusalem, outside of its walls, where the bodies of unclaimed criminals were gathered, burned, and ultimately destroyed. But Gehenna also refers to a pool into which they, the, the blood and the fat were flowing from the temporal sacrifices. So imagine this place outside the walls with all this drainage, with all these dead bodies, with all this blood, guts, and gore that finishes in this dump outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And massive worms were said to have constantly ingest all of that fat and blood and disgusting sewage. And the smoke was said to arise day after day after day forever and ever. So the point is when Jesus is describing what life is like apart from God, he looks around thinks that Gehenna will be a very good metaphor, and he knew that it could be easily understood. So if someone were to ask Jesus, what is life like apart from God? What is life like in eternity apart from God? Jesus says, well, it's like that place called Gehenna. It's like hell. It's like a place where bodies are unclaimed, where they are burned and destroyed. It's like a pool into which the blood and the fat flow from the temple sacrifices and where the Worms are constantly ingesting all of that in some sewage system. If you want to know what life is like apart from God, it's like Gehenna. It's like hell. Wait, Pastor Jeff, are you telling me that hell is not fire and worms and darkness and free falling? Whew, that makes me feel a lot better. Well, don't feel better because anytime Jesus uses a metaphor to describe a spiritual reality, it means that the reality is far more intense, far greater than the symbol could ever signify. And the overarching feature concerning life and eternity without God, as illustrated by Gehenna, is its geographical location. That's the point. It's a place outside the walls or the city of Jerusalem, which is represented Uh, which is a representation of the people in the city of God. In fact, every time Jesus talks about Gehenna, just about every time he emphasizes this one trait, that it's outside the city, the people of God. Matthew 18, 12. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside. Well, where's outside? Outside of Jerusalem, the city of God, the people of God, into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, 13. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 25, 30, and throw that worthless servant outside, outside what? Outside of Jerusalem, outside the city and the people of God, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And by the way, the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth was representative in the first century culture of a self-absorbed, highly narcissistic person who was angry because they didn't get their way. So this is not the teeth of regret or sadness. It's the grinding of the teeth and anger that you're not getting what it is that you ultimately want. And then in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 through 15, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And then verse 15 Outside, outside of what? Outside of the people of God, the kingdom of God, the city of God, are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, just quickly, alternatively, the book of Revelation in Revelation 21 actually talks about the city of God and what that's like. And just very quickly, it mentions that the city of God And it's describing the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven that will house the people of God uh, in the city of God, in the presence of God. And it says, as it describes this city, I mean, it's not giving building codes. It's simply telling us through symbolic language that there will be 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. It was 12,000 stadia long, wide, and high. And the wall around it was 144 cubits thick. Now, what's the point here? Well, the number 12 in the Bible represents the people of God. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. Again, on and on, the people of Israel, the people of God. And so Revelation 21 tells us that this new city, Jerusalem, will house, will hold the people of God. It will be conducive for the people of God in celebration of the people of God. And no aspect of it will be outside of the realm of the people of God. Now, that's important, and you say, why? Well, Jesus is trying to teach us that Gehenna is the exact opposite of the city of God. It is outside of the walls of Jerusalem. This is the main metaphor, the main theme, in an attempt to describe what life is like in eternity without God. You are outside of the presence of the living God, outside of everything that is good. And those who have chosen, then, Jesus teaches to live as though God does not exist and as though he has never revealed himself, as though Jesus is nothing more than a good teacher or prophet, not the very son of God validated by his resurrection. The Bible tells us then, Jesus tells us in any red letter edition that these people will reside outside of the city and the people of God in a place that is described as very similar to Gehenna. However... Think about heaven for a moment. Are there really streets of gold? I've mentioned this numerous times. I don't think so. In reality, there's something far greater. First Corinthians, Paul tells us no eye has seen nor ear has heard what God has prepared. It's so grand that you can't you cannot imagine what it's going to be like. But hell is so intense and so wicked and So unfathomable that it would be possible through any human language to describe what life is like for those outside the presence, the city, and the people of God. So question one, what do you mean by hell? You say that you believe in a loving God and that your loving God would not send anybody to hell to be tormented forever and ever. Well, what do you mean by hell? Now, if you mean by hell, what Jesus meant by hell, that it's existence apart from God, where there's death and decay and ruin and futility, there's no hope, there's nothing good, hatred, betrayal, bitterness, ruin, futility, hopelessness, all of that, everything that eats away at the Spirit, then there's another question I have to ask you, and I'll get to that in a moment, but first, does that not make sense to you? That if you're outside of the presence of God, then everything that God represents and provides would no longer be accessible to you. A couple of years ago, I was fascinated with an article I read in National Geographic describing to us what would happen on planet Earth if the sun went out. The article said with no sunlight, photosynthesis would stop. Plants, vegetation would start to die. Within a few days, the temperatures would begin to drop and any humans left on the planet's surface would die out very soon. Within two months, the ocean's surface would freeze over. Then the atmosphere would actually collapse. Radiation would seep in. The earth would be an inhospitable wasteland drifting aimlessly through space. Now, is it not logical that if you're removed from the sun, you cannot expect to experience its glory? In the same way, if you are removed from God, the ultimate source of glory and power and goodness and majesty and life itself and all that comes with him then, would no longer be available to you. It would be the disintegration of the soul, which is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, in Gehenna. So now he's taking that metaphor of Gehenna and saying, the similarities are so close. If you want to know what it's like to exist in eternality without the presence of God or outside of the presence of God, it's like someone destroying not only your body, but also your soul. Now, this word for destroy is the Greek word apollumi. It's not the word for annihilation. It's not the word that means to go out of existence. It's the word that means ruin. So the soul goes on. You continue on in existence. We've said before, how, how do you destroy Non-material. You are created in the image of God. He has created you to endure. You have a soul that is eternal, but you can live out the rest of eternity, either in the presence of God or outside the presence of God. That's much like Gehenna, where there's death and disintegration and waste and hopelessness. Now, here's the second question. It's very important. How do you know that God is love? Notice in your statement, the statement that is most common, I believe in a God of love, Pastor Jeff, and a God of love would never send anyone to hell and torment them for eternity. So first of all, what if God doesn't send you there? What if God simply gives you the full ramifications of free will decisions that you made while you were living on planet earth? So all your life you say or live as if, I don't want God, I don't need God, and therefore, because you want to live your own way, and you don't really care whether or not God exists to you, it's irrelevant to your life, then in eternity, God says to you, okay, not my will, but yours be done. You want to live outside the presence of God as if God does not exist? Fine. So does God send you there? Or in reality, does he give you the fullest ramifications of the decisions you made while you were alive? Now, second, let me go back to that question. How do you know that God is a God of love? Who told you that? I'm being very serious here. Who told you that God was a God of love? What if God is just a big bag cosmic boss? He creates everything and just slaps everyone into order. In the movie, Bruce Almighty, Bruce's life is falling apart. And he says, God is a mean kid sitting on a hill with a magnifying glass, and I'm the ant. He can fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, but he would rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. Now, what if Bruce is right? Who told you that God is good and kind and relational and merciful and loving? Who told you that? Can I tell you why you think that? Because by no means is that the dominant ruling attribute of God in any other major faith or philosophical system. Even Islam, which is the closest to us, will tell you that it is disrespectful to speak of a loving, personal God that can be known personally and experienced. So again, who told you that God is loving? The answer, of course, is the Bible. That's where you got it from, whether you understand that or not. Pastor Jeff, I've never read the Bible. That may be true, but you're still living under the influence of the Christ movement that happened over 2,000 years ago. The historical Jesus that changed everything. Who gave us our moral foundations. Who came to show us the way to the Father. Now, I say that because here's your problem. The same Bible that tells you God is love, which you so affectionately believe, also tells you that God is a God of holiness and righteousness. And that one day, everybody's going to stand before him and give an account for the way they've lived their lives. We read this passage last week in Hebrews 9.27 as it is appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. So number one, what do you mean by hell? If you mean separation from God, okay. Question two, how do you know God is good? You know God is good and loving because the Bible tells you that, but it's the same Bible that tells you God is holy and righteous and all sin will be punished. And I know that I'm a sinner and that you are as well. We are all sinners. So question three then, who goes to this place? Okay, Jeff, but even if you're right about hell, I'm not going there. Okay, all right, who does? Now, remember what we said, hell is Gehenna, separation from the city, the people, the presence of God. Now, what are the characteristics of the person who ends up in this place called hell? Well, somebody was, well, it's obviously a place for Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, Saddam Hussein, Mugabe, all those guys. That's all? This is where Jesus' story really helps us. For years, I could not get my head around this because I couldn't understand what Jesus was trying to communicate. They're difficult words. So now in the passage, in Luke 16, I want you to notice that we have two different men with different earthly statuses. You've got an extremely poor man, man and an extremely rich man. In fact, the rich man is so wealthy that we're told he dressed in Purple and fine linen. Purple is the outer garment of royalty. Fine linen is the underwear. So he's so wealthy, he has expensive underwear. We're also told that he walked out of the gate of his home every day and the poor man was so poor that his friends actually had to lay him at the gate. He didn't even have his own ability and volition to walk and to beg at the rich man's table. We're also told that what he wanted was the crumbs that fall or fell from the rich man's table. And the word used there is a a lesser type of bread Uh, As we've said before, in the first century, when they would eat, they would cleanse their hands of the dirt, grease, and grime after they'd had a meal if you were wealthy, and they would take a lesser grain of bread, barley bread, and wash their hands and then throw those crumbs under the table. Those are the crumbs for which the poor man was begging. Now, the reason this is difficult is because, so does that mean if you're poor, you automatically go to heaven, and if you're rich, you automatically go to hell? Well, that doesn't make any sense because there are plenty of wealthy people mentioned in the scripture who are fully committed, dedicated followers of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that really should concern us because by today's standards, you and I are the wealthy ones. That would mean we have no chance to get into heaven. So that can't be, and it's not what it means. But notice the second thing in the parable. Although their statuses now have been reversed, the rich man seems to be blind to that reality. Isn't it amazing He calls Father Abraham and he says, hey, send Lazarus, send my water boy, send my servant. Treats him the same way he treated while he was living on planet earth. Nothing's really changed. He still thinks this poor man, Lazarus, exists to supply and meet his needs and desires. Send that boy, fetch the water boy, have him go get some water and put it on the end of my tongue and cool my tongue because I'm in torment in this fire, he says
0: you've been listening to today with jeff vines thanks for joining us next time we'll bring
1: you the rest of this message from pastor jeff none of us are good no one not one is righteous have you ever lied you have what does that make you it makes you a liar paul says and that's what some of you were but you're not that anymore you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, the sacrifice of Jesus covers it all. You can listen to more messages like
0: this. Just search for
1: Today with Jeff Finds
0: wherever you listen to podcasts.